All right. Good morning, everybody. Hi, I'm Stephanie, person in recovery. Uh, bear with me a little bit. It is 3.30 in the morning. Um, I've been up for a little bit, so if I'm a little bit all over the place, that's probably why. Um, so let's start out with the basics. So uh, my sobriety date is the 23rd of September 2021. Um, so I've been sober just over a year now. Um, and yeah, we'll go down a little bit of a recovery journey. And uh, we'll see where we end up. So a little bit about me. So if you can't tell by my accent, uh, I'm not American or Australian. Uh, I'm from New Zealand. Uh, so I grew up in New Zealand. Um, I grew up in the, sort of in the hood, uh, I guess is probably the way that we used to say it, was I grew up in the sort of rough side of town, uh, the West. Um, but I had very, uh, my parents, you know, it's just me, my mom and my dad. Um, I don't have any siblings. Uh, it's just me. Uh, I also think it's important to mention my uh, ethnicity, my background. So I'm actually, if you don't know, and you probably won't be able to see on a recording, uh, but I'm quarter Chinese, quarter Maori or indigenous New Zealand and half European. Uh, so for me, it was a very interesting cultural mesh of a lot of different things for me to come to be where I am today. And, and I kind of like to mention where I, my ethnicity, just because I think it's important to acknowledge where I've come from and my background. Um, I had no addiction in my immediate family between my mum and my dad, um, but mental health and addiction was always around me and in my extended family. That was a really big thing that I've come to learn as I've gotten through my recovery journey. Uh, so a little bit about where I came from. Uh, so for me, I had a very interesting childhood. Um, I actually grew up in a, in a hospital. Uh, so a big, big traumatic part of my life was um, from the ages of four months until I was about 18 years old. Um, I lived in I lived in a hospital. So I grew up with an immune disorder. Uh, basically, it means that my body doesn't produce antibodies, so I can't really fight infection. So what happened to me was uh, I was put in hospital a lot. I was given a lot of um, tests and things like that. My parents didn't know what was wrong, but at four months old, we were found was found out that I had a diagnosis of a, an immune disorder. Uh, so for me, that that started a a good chain of trauma. But we'll just start with the simple one of that's you know a big part of my story is I grew up in a hospital. Um, my childhood was pretty good for what it was. Um, I basically went to went to school. I jumped around a lot of schools. I went to approximately. I went to four schools by the time I was seven years old. Uh, my mum was someone that wanted to take me to multiple different schools and take me to different places. She didn't trust the school system. Um, but when I was seven, my my parents separated and uh, my dad decided to move away to another city. And so that kind of started another chain of events in my sort of family life because I, for me, I don't have any siblings. It's just me. Um, so it's just like I said, me, my mum and my dad. Um, so when that sort of happened, it was a big, big kind of thing for me to go from having two present parents to my dad moving away. Uh, three years later, we moved. My mum and I decided to move into the same city my dad was living in um, for me to have a more present and uh, to be around some basic things around uh, sort of to have my, both my parents present. And it was a good thing, you know, after having my parents separated for quite a long time, it was nice to just have some parents together. Um, so, yeah, uh, I hit up, you know, I went to school. I eventually settled in one school and went to high school. Um, when I was 13, some things started to get a little bit chaotic in my life. Um, my mum moved out. My mum came out as being a lesbian and she found a partner and she moved 
And with her partner and I had to learn to live with my father, who I didn't have any experiences really living with. Um, I had to learn how to live with my dad, and I suddenly started acting out through that journey. Um, basically, that was when my drinking had started. I think I was about 12 when I first had some, uh, I can't even remember what alcohol it was. It was just alcohol. <laughs> I had alcohol at about the age of 12, and it started out a good pattern of underage drinking in New Zealand. Uh, the drinking age was is, uh, 18, not 21 like in the US. So I, I was very much the kid that started underage drinking and smoking cigarettes at a, around 13, 14. Um, my mum started, my mum moved out. She found a new partner. And uh, even though we all lived in the, in the city, um, it was just kind of crazy to sort of have now suddenly my mum was gone and uh, I had to decide I had to live with my dad. I had no choice. Um, because I didn't get on with my mother at the time. Uh, so yeah, between the ages of 13 and 17, I really started to kick up the negative coping skills. This is where it starts to get, you know, a little bit interesting. Um, I had history with self-harm, alcohol abuse, smoking cigarettes, but uh, 14 was really the age where I kicked in and started to be a rebel in my life. Um, by the age of 17, uh, I was actually kicked out of home. My father had kicked me out of the house due to um, an incident and I think I was around, I want to say I was around 16, 15 or 16, um, when I actually had an exorcism. My my grandmother, who had caught me underage drinking one night, had decided that it would be a great idea to perform an exorcism on me. So she uh, sat me down and she came from a religious background and I wasn't raised with any religion around me. That's, that's something that my parents just didn't have. Um, but I was sat down in a chair essentially and was made to uh, sit still while my mother, my grandmother decided that she would perform an exorcism on me. And uh, I really rebelled at that stage. You know, I really, I lost it. Uh, I didn't understand what was going on. I kind of, I can hear her words in the back of my mind of what she was saying, uh, drive the demons, drive the demons out of Stephanie that makes her act out, that makes her do these things because she didn't understand what was going on. I didn't understand, you know, I was just a kid, um, but suddenly I was put in this position. So, but yeah, the at the age of uh, 17, I was kicked out of home by my dad. So I had no choice but to um, move in with my mother. So it would basically become this thing of jumping between two places. My parents already was, you know, separated and my mom had a new partner. But uh, for me, it was just I had to go and live at one parent, then stay at another parent, and live at a parent's and stay at another one's. And uh, that constantly is a big thing. Geographical movement became a really big thing where my parents separated, flying between two cities and then having to get kicked out of one house and have to go and move into another person's home. So um, my hospital stuff, you know, that still was around in that sort of time between the ages of uh, definitely still around 15 to 16. I you know, I was looking back, um, I was really quite traumatized by the hospital system because I had to, I, I nearly lost my life from being in hospital, um, just from being a sick child. And uh, and then suddenly having to be this, uh, this adult, this adult in this situation where I had to learn how to do things on my own. And it became an outpatient thing. I managed to get kind of semi well, but uh, I had to keep moving around and, and dealing with a lot of a lot of stuff you know it wasn't easy to be a 16 17 year old kid uh in hospital and and going through that system 
so the last year of my high school, so in New Zealand, we have uh, 13 years of school, not uh, 12 like in some countries. And the last year of my high school was hard. I just had gotten kicked out of home at my dad's house. I was placed in with my mum and uh, I was placed in intensive therapy from the hospital. I had started um, self-harming pretty seriously by this point. Uh, I'd had a few bouts with just really bad, bad drugs. But aside from the the drinking and the drugging and the smoking of cigarettes, and by this time some weed had kicked in and cannabis had gone into become a, also a drug of choice, um, it just became a mess. And I had intensive therapy. I was given an outpatient, an inpatient um, form to fill in when I would go into hospital, and they'd sit me down with a social worker and they'd try and figure out, you know, how are you today? What's going on with you? But uh, Eventually, it got to an outpatient where I was placed in a, I had to go every, I think it was about yeah, once or, once or twice a week, I had to go down to this this place uh, and uh, have to go and have assessments and sit down with someone, with a therapist and talk about what was going on because I wasn't, I was not able to escape the, uh, I was, how do I put this in the right way? Because of the hospital, the way that I was raised in the hospital, I was always kind of monitored. So I, it wasn't really a case of me being able to just ditch um, my a my treatment for which I needed to have because I needed to be you know alive and and well. But um, you know it was kind of obvious by that point that something was wrong when I would go into hospital and um, nurses would see self harming scars or I would show up and I think a few times I'd shown up under the influence. And so you know I was by that point people were starting to get a bit concerned about me. Um, I had the diagnosis, <clears throat> excuse me, had the diagnosis of depression and anxiety that all came out. Um, I was drinking. I had not told my, you know, psychologist that I had been drinking. I said that, you know, I had a bit of an issue with this, the cutting and stuff like that, but really the alcohol was still in the background and I never, I never saw it as an issue. If I was honest, I had grown up around alcohol my whole life, but I'd never really viewed it as an issue. And it, it didn't really come an issue until obviously I came into recovery. Um, so I've been in therapy since I was 15. I'm nearly 30 now. I'm going to be 30 next April. Um, so for about 15 years, I've done extensive sort of therapy and through the public health system in New Zealand and through the um, private sector as well. Uh, so in 20, trying to get my math correctly, 2011, um, I was in the Christchurch earthquake. Um, which was an earthquake that devastated my entire city in the space of 30 seconds. Uh, 180 fe 185 people passed away. Um, and that was a really big event. That was, I can remember that very, very clearly. And that stands out. That was a big, uh, acute stressor is what the word that it comes to mind. Um, and my entire city was gone within a few seconds. Um, we all, you know, most, it was a small town of 320,000 people. We all knew someone that had lost someone and uh, I can contribute that sort of event to a lot of my drinking where it really started to, my drinking and drugging just took off immediately after that because I just lost my city. Um, after that, my uh, my mother had decided that it was a great idea for her to to move overseas. She had a, she was already in the process of moving to um, Australia at that time she was from New Zealand she'd lived in New Zealand her whole life but she decided that she wanted to go and live in Christchurch uh sorry go and move to Australia 
So uh, she basically packed up all her stuff. She'd moved across to Australia and I was left in New Zealand. Um, and I had to make a decision because I was in my last year of, I was just finishing high school when there was a small minor one in September of 2010, which was my last year of high school. And then the earthquake happened in February of 2011. And I decided to take a year off um, school before I got, went to university. So uh, the earthquake just kind of essentially fucked everything up for me. I couldn't, I couldn't go to university. I couldn't find a job. I couldn't find work. So a lot of my time was just spent uh, with my friends that had not gone to university. Um, and we were just drinking and drugging. Like that's basically all we were doing. Um, I found out that, you know, in 2010, <laughs> it's actually quite funny to think about it, but in 2012, um, I decided to go to university. So 10 years ago, um, I started that I needed to find an education and it was, I was able to go to a university. Um, I wanted to fit in, you know, and so within the first two years, I was pretty, I was a pretty studious student. Um, I wasn't the person who was to go to like all these events around uh, sobriety, uh, not around sobriety, sorry, just get my head in the game. Uh, a lot of events that were like partying stuff. I didn't go to, we had these things called toga parties where you'd go and all get pissed in your first week of university. I was never that person. Um, I would just drink around my friends. Um, but basically when it came to my third year is when the drinking really, really took off. I'd be the sober friend. Um, the one who didn't want to drink because I was not was not a fan of alcohol, like in the sense of I didn't need it to go and have a party, but I didn't want to be the one that was kind of left out. So I would be the one who'd be the designated driver, the sober driver, um, but I'd be the one drunk. Um, so, you know, there'd be, I've looked back at my sort of drinking history and there'd be, a, there was a lot of events where I do multiple activities to stay, to stay drunk. Once I was able to, you know, I kind of, once everyone else had started to get drunk, I was like, I can join and we'll find our own way home. It doesn't matter. Um, so I would drink. Um, and I noticed a lot of my behavior was preloading. Uh, it's very common in New Zealand. I don't know about other places, but at least in New Zealand, you would basically go preload, get drunk, and then you'd go out. Um, so for me, I'm, I kind of came into this really destructive pattern of getting drunk, vomiting, and then drinking other types of alcohol to continue the sort of party, you know, even though I knew that I was a sober driver, it wouldn't really matter because by the end of the night, I was the one needing assistance. I would always remember, you know, with my friends, I'd be like, I don't want to drink tonight. Like I'm okay. But uh, eventually, you know, I would be the one that was drunk at the end of the night. Um, around this time, I would start becoming, uh, I would start becoming quite promiscuous. I became someone that was, uh, you know, someone who needed validation through other people. And I, I don't know if I want to touch on this so much, but just a lot of my time was with under the influence with meeting people that were unhealthy for me and being in unsafe situations because I was under the influence. Um, I'd found myself in a lot of situations where I, I wasn't safe. I wasn't looking after myself um, because I was drunk half the time. I was definitely, and a few you probably can't tell on the recording or you can't see in person, uh, but I'm only four foot nine. So I'm a very, very tiny little person. And so it wouldn't take a lot for me to get absolutely smashed and feel like I wanted to go and do something. And so, yeah, re relationships were very, very short lived because I wasn't emotionally stable. Um, anyone I'd met, you know, I didn't really, it was a very quick, quick flame. Basically um, my grades were average enough in university, but uh 
they were they were enough to actually get into postgraduate, which was really surprising for me. So I got my my bachelor's degree, um, and then after my bachelor's degree, all my friends had left university. They decided that they didn't want to stay and do postgraduate. Um, so I was the only one who stayed out of all my friends and decided to go for her master's degree. Um, but during my master's, uh, I was given my own office. <laughs> I was given my own office and I started my drinking. It started to take off again. I had my own office with a key and a lock and um, I was bringing alcohol onto campus and drinking during the day. And I was also smoking cannabis on, on the property. Um, you know, even in my office, I'd been caught once by, a, um, by another student who had said, oh, you know, you look like you're under the influence. And I, I denied it and just said, no, it's not me, it's someone else. I don't remember what excuse I used, but uh, I thought, it's not me. You know, it's not me. Um, but I did manage to graduate university in 20, 2019. Oh, this is where it gets the dates, a bit confusing. But I did end up graduating university with a master's degree. Um, I'm quite proud of myself. And I guess I, I mentioned that because it's a big part of my story. Um, but the whole time in between doing that, I had to deal with my parents who lived in two different countries by this point. Um, my mum was in New Zealand, uh, sorry, my mum was in Australia, my dad was in New Zealand, and uh, I took my problems with me, basically, is how I look at it. I flew from one country to the other. If I had a problem or a fight with my mother, I'd go to New Zealand, um, and then when I'd fight with my dad, I'd go to Australia. Um, so it was really challenging, and I took my problems wherever I went, wherever I went, there I was, and that's something that I really like. Uh, I don't obviously like, but you know, that was one thing I, I never noticed is that I would get into raging fits with my father when I was drunk or or anything like that. And then I'd be sort of, you know, kicked out or slash sent, you know, almost sent across the across the ditch, we call it, uh, to Australia. And then my mum and I would have a falling out over something and she'd want to send me back to New Zealand. So it would be this consistent bouncing around of two places. Um but yeah, I got my master's degree. Um, my friends out of my first friends out of university was someone that I my first friend that I had out of university was someone I'd met in Australia. Um, we became friends, and my drinking and drugging had taken off. Um, we'd met, and we met it just a, randomly on the internet one day, and suddenly, within about a week, we were doing a lot of heavy alcohol and a lot of drugs. Uh, Cannabis, cocaine, mushrooms, LSD, it was a lot of stuff. Um, I was really acting out by the stage because I'd felt really lost. I'd lost all my friends from university. I mean, I'd finished university by this point. I was starting to finish, you know, and get my life together. But uh, this friend that I'd made, we just, we went to town together. We were two best, you know, two peas in a pod, essentially. And we just found it that we could we could bond over our common traumas. And uh, I, I found him like my brother and we basically, we basically just became two people that were constantly using drugs together. It wouldn't matter if, you know, it was a Monday night or a Friday night, we were both using cons consumptions and consumption of alcohol and uh, other drugs on top of that. So, and my other stuff with my other problems hadn't stopped. It had just continued on and on and on um, sort of with my drinking and drugging you know my promiscuity had come out by this point a lot more it just was going chaotic um I had a Christmas party that was made for me around uh 2019 
I'd never had a Christmas party before. I didn't know what a Christmas party was because Christmas in my family would always be a big argument about where I'm going to spend my Christmas. Would it be staying with my mum in Australia or going with my dad in New Zealand? Uh, so for me, uh, someone, my friend, a friend that I had met in Australia decided that they'd put on a Christmas party for me. And uh, my alcohol and drugging went haywire that night. Um, I can remember, you know, I remember showing up and being so anxious about being in that that space and in that house. But uh, I decided that, you know, I'm going to have a little bit of drink and then I'm going to have a little bit of drugs and then I'm going to have a lot more alcohol. And uh, I was so sick that night. And I remember it very, very clear. clearly. I was vomiting everywhere. I was incredibly anxious and my stomach was upset. Um, the party was for me, you know, the party was so I could have this experience of being able to celebrate Christmas with some friends and uh, I ruined it. I absolutely ruined that night and I, I'll never forget it because I remember at the end of it, I was just passed out in a bed with a bucket essentially right next to me and was just comatose by that point was just, yeah, was not a good place to be. In. And I thought, you know, I look back and I think, wouldn't that be enough? You know, I look back and think, shit, if I'd known I could, could have gotten sober then, maybe something would have different. But no, I, I had no idea. Um, you know, I had a stepmother who had been in recovery before. She's got 30-something-odd years. Um, but she didn't, you know, she'd never really seen me drunk or act out or anything like that. So I, it just didn't occur to me that maybe I could stop my drinking. It never kind of occurred to me. Um, so when the pandemic came around, Oh, this is when it, you know, it gets very interesting. Um, the pandemic was one of the hardest times for me um, because when I was actually planning on, when the pandemic had started, I actually started to get my life together. I'd met a partner. Um, we were actually going to live together in Australia for three months and then the pandemic happened. And within the space of uh, about a day, we had to essentially change our plans of living together in Australia. And uh it's a weird one because I was drinking. Um, I also nearly took my own life. I mean, I'd had a few attempts previously around suicide, um, but around the pandemic, I really had lost it in about July of 20, 2019, uh, 2020. There was a, a big period where I really didn't want to be alive. I was drinking. I was drugging. Um, I was stuck in New Zealand because obviously you couldn't you couldn't travel anywhere. And uh, I couldn't obviously be with my partner and we were planning on living together at that point. So my life was all ready to get set up and and, move, and live together. Um, but I couldn't do anything. I couldn't go anywhere. Couldn't leave the country. So I was stuck. I was essentially stuck in one country. And uh, yeah, my mental health took a really big dive around July of 2020, just around the pandemic and being unable to move and go anywhere and see anybody. And, uh, the, you know, I'm a big geographical movement person. I always would, you know, like I said, go to one parent, go to another parent, or I'd go and see friends in another city when there was a problem. So I'd always be something somewhere. Um, the only thing that stopped me from really, really getting to the point of of being successful, I guess, in my attempts to in my own life was I didn't think my parents deserved to see me uh, like that. You know, I think that that really... I'd gotten very, 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 very close and, but I had made the decision sort of in my, in the back of my mind that I knew that my parents didn't deserve to see me, um, dead. So I, I, you know, I'd stopped my plans and, 
essentially I'd made the decision, okay, well, if I'm not happy in here, the moment there was an opportunity for me to move, uh, I took it. Um, I was lucky enough to be able to move to Canada. So in about November, uh, just over just over two years ago, I got the opportunity to go to Canada, even though the borders were shut. Um, I moved to be with my partner. I didn't know anybody. Um, I had no friends in Canada and haven't hadn't made any friends when I had got there. So I knew no one. I knew my partner, his family, and uh, his parents, and that was it. Um, you know, when I arrived there, I wasn't really, I wasn't lost. I was excited to be in a new place. I was excited to have the opportunity, even in a, in a pandemic, to be in a new country. Um, but within about three months of me being there, things started to unravel really, really slowly. My um, my, my partner, now ex-partner, had uh, had lost his job. He had come off uh, the job with COVID and he had never been able to return to work. Um, so we, I was basically, and I wasn't able to work also in the, when the pandemic was going. So I came to Canada on a work, uh, on a tourist visa and was just sitting there waiting for things to change for me to be able to start to set up my life. And I, all in between that, I was drinking. Um, by mid, I think it was about mid-July, um, I had a really, I had an incident of with alcohol that that I look back now and still think, <laughs> you'd think this would be enough, but it definitely wasn't. Um, I was with one of my, my ex-partner's friends in one night, and she'd done this thing called controlled drinking. And I'd never heard of control, controlled drinking in my life. She'd she poured out the alcohol and measured it out. And uh, I thought, yeah, okay, let's give this a go. Let's see how this goes. And uh, I think about two drinks in, I grabbed the whole bottle. And I was just drink drinking straight from the bottle. It didn't matter that uh, I was at the place and, you know, I was supposed to be the guest. Um, I went and got the bottle of alcohol and just started sculling it straight out of the bottle. And uh, I came home that night incredibly, incredibly drunk. And uh, I actually ended up falling down and hurting myself pretty badly. Um, I had got myself a massive black eye. And uh, that was a big shock to me. That was sort of the big <gasps> moment of where I realized like I'd actually hurt myself from my own alcohol, my own drinking. Um, so I'd woken up the next morning and I couldn't understand. My memory had gone a little bit. And then I look in the mirror and there's a massive black eye on my face. And um I think by that point, I thought, well, maybe I didn't think there was a problem with my alcohol. I just thought that, uh, I, yeah, I went a little bit overboard that night. Maybe I should ease up on the drink and just try and try and do it properly rather than just trying to always go and get shit-faced. I never thought about it like that. But, uh, yeah, so I continued on with my drinking. I started to drink a bit more consistently. You know, I was feeling very, very alone and isolated in Canada. I was unable to go back to Australia or New Zealand uh, because the borders were still shut. Um, but I never thought alcohol was the issue. More that just I'd let loose a lot of times with my alcohol and my drinking and just that, yeah, I, I really didn't think I'd had a problem. Um, I started to drink more regularly and more often. I was buying more alcohol. Um, it's interesting. I have notes in my journal noting that I was consistently drinking. I would just find myself in a in a state where it was basically nearly every day I was just drinking a little bit, just drinking alcohol, and it just was a normal thing. Day drinking became incredibly normal for me. Um, but about a fortnight after my incident with alcohol, my therapist said maybe I should try AA. And uh, 
this is where it gets a bit blurry in my head and I, I didn't really listen you know I'd heard of AA before from my uh my stepmother who had you know 30 something odd years in recovery but I'd never really heard of what AA was um so in September of last year um I you know my incident that happened with my black eye had happened in July I'd gone away camping I was still drinking. Um, I managed to somehow control myself enough around other people and um, my ex's family. But uh, in September, I really, I, I don't know what made me decide that I needed to seek out AA, but I think just because I kept, I kept hearing my, ther my therapist saying, have you actually gone to a meeting? Have you gone to a meeting? And uh, I hadn't gone to any meetings. Uh, so I tried to go to a woman's meeting. The first meeting uh, in person I went to was in Vancouver, um, I tried to go to a woman's meeting. I actually, I actually sat outside the room and uh, just watched the people come in. I think we drove down about three or four times, and I was just sitting in the car watching the the woman come in the building, and thinking none of them look like me. This was a ten a.m. meeting. Um, you know, I didn't. They were all soccer mums. they were all they had babies, and I just I just didn't fit in, and I couldn't bring myself to go in the room. Um, so I came home, ran home and, and started to look at Zoom, uh, Zoom meetings. And I just, I think I just Googled AA meetings online and suddenly found Zoom. Uh, so I started to go to an, uh, an online meeting that was in Vancouver. It was a, a queer meeting where I could attend and I started going online. I didn't have my camera on, nothing like that. And I started going once a week because the meeting was held once a week. And I uh, spoke up in my second meeting. So I... Technically, I would say that I am a Zoom baby because I, I got sober mainly through in, uh, traditional uh, traditional Zoom meetings. Um, so that was really, that's a big thing for me because it wasn't really through the in-person interactions that I was having because I hadn't had the opportunity to go in person. Um, so like I said, uh, September 23rd was my last drink. Um, and I remember it very, very well. It was during my therapy session. Um, you know, I was already drinking. I knew I was going into a therapy session where I would have to go and talk about some heavy stuff. And uh, my therapist had said midway through the session, are you drinking? And are you drunk now? And uh, I couldn't hide it at that point. I could not hide the fact that I was drinking pretty much essentially. Um, so two weeks after my my drink, I I think by that point, Vancouver had opened it up to where you in-person meetings were starting to resume. Um, so I walked into one meeting, uh, one of the meetings on a Friday and decided to sit down and listen. And uh, there was one guy there who'd sat there and he shared and I and I liked what he shared about. And I walked up to him and said, hey, can, can you be my sponsor? And so, you know, I didn't even know anything about the program or anything like that. I just walked straight up to him. Can you be my sponsor? And uh, he said, yes. Um, I basically I heard him share once and. Yeah, he helped me. He, um, he gave me the big book. I uh, know he didn't give me the big book. He gave me uh, what was the? He gave me a pamphlet, and I can't actually remember what the pamphlet was. I think it was "What Is AA," and uh, he said, "Take that home and read it." So I, I got the book. I got to read it uh, and sit down with the, the pamphlet, and I went, "Okay, yeah, maybe I do need to be in this." Um, and so yeah, we went through. We went through the traditional big book. I was kind enough to be gifted the traditional big book by someone in recovery, um, a secretary of the meeting who is no longer here, um, which was quite a hard one for me because I, 
they passed away quite recently, but they gave me my first big book free of charge. And uh, I came back and sneakily gave a $50.07 tradition. And they said, don't you ever donate again. Don't you ever donate again. Um, so, yeah, you know, I did the steps. You know, I was given the big book. I was told to read the big book. We would meet uh, once a week. We'd have coffee. I'd have to read a chapter prior to it and then come and talk about it, see what I thought about it. And then we'd be given another one. And then we'd start the steps. Um, so I did the steps through traditional. Um, they were okay. You know, I did them. I, during my traditional experience, um, I went to multiple meetings online as well. This is when I started to find that once a week was just not doing it for me. And it was quite a trick for me to go in person um, just because it was about 40 minutes to go to what I would, what I considered my home group. Um, so I started to do some meetings that were online. I, I did manage to go to a an in-person meeting at a rehab center with one of the people in recovery that I knew. We found one online out about 45 minutes out of Vancouver and we walked in and we were one of, I was one of two females in a men's rehab. And uh, that was amazing. I, I really look back on that experience as being, you know, we just didn't know. We had no idea it was a rehab center, but uh, yeah, that was one of the in-person meetings I went to and it was amazing. Uh, I'll never forget that. Um, but, you know, I went back to the Zoom world because I couldn't really, I, I just couldn't, it was too much of a hassle to go in person, if I'm honest. It was just such a, a drag and it was still kind of, you know, pandemic was like not, was not the right time to be going out every single day and trying to meet all these different people and go to meetings. Uh, so I went online and I found, you know, 24 hour traditional meetings, everything like that. And uh, that had really, really, really helped. Um, but yeah, suddenly through, you know, getting the steps and going through my step four, my step four, I sort of did in December of last year. I did that. We, we really rushed through the steps with me. I think within the space of nine months, I completed the steps. Um, I managed to make my amends from being in Canada and contacting my parents and like we would sit down and have the zoom, have a, have a zoom meeting sitting and talking about what I'd done and things like that. And I, I, I thought I did well. I thought I did okay. Um, so I got them done in, yeah, in nine months. So, yeah, that's how long it took for me to do traditional. Um, but basically, one day I was on AA Intergroup's website and uh, I, I saw a little button and I was like, what does secular mean? And I, I knew you could, like, filter it out. And so, I, you know, I clicked on ones that were, that were obviously English and then I looked around at just different ones and I thought, what's secular? And uh, one meeting had popped up that I'd seen and I'd never seen it before. And I went, ah, oh, okay, there's, there's meetings without the God. Oh, okay. So, I mean, I did the steps the conventional way through traditional AA, um, but I found with the AA intergroup and I found the secular tab, you know, and for me, I didn't really consider the whole religious aspect. I was told fake it till I make it. And uh I mean, I managed to complete the steps. I was always told by my traditional sponsor, it'll, you know, he wasn't religious himself, but he uh, he just said, keep coming. He just said, keep coming. Eventually you'll get it. Eventually you'll find what works for you. And uh, so I was really told just fake it till I make it essentially. Um, you know, after having an exorcism when I was 13, 14, I guess in a way religion had always become a sort of a tainted thing after that point, but I didn't really put two and two together that I had a real distaste for religion it was just my personal view um the way I knew was traditional mainstream AA you know I just was 
okay, comfortable with being, I was comfortable enough in the rooms, you know, I'd meet some amazing people, um, but I definitely knew that for me, it wasn't really the biggest thing because step, whenever anyone would talk about step three, I wouldn't know what to say. Um, so yeah, and then once I found, I found a few meetings um, and secular meditation was, I think, one of the first ones. If not, it was all night place. Um, I went into those meetings and found some people and uh, suddenly the world opened up. Suddenly this sort of ah, moment came in the sky of just, oh, okay, there's people here who are practicing things without religion and without the grandiosity of things. And uh, suddenly I could just be more comfortable and it was weird experience to just have um none of the god stuff which was so different and so new but also that it felt like more that people had a more practical way of sharing their recovery and uh you know since finding secular uh, it's just changed the game for me um i attend more meetings now than i ever have before i'm fully online i don't go to any in-person meetings um i'm stuck in the middle of service i do so much service for meetings you probably know me as a service nut um, you know, because I've just always been stuck in the Zoomiverse. I got sober through Zoom and I found it that when it went to in-person meetings, people would just would ditch Zoom and say, no, I don't want to go into them anymore. Why don't we just go in person? Um, but I knew that the accessibility for everyone was not always, it's not always easy to go to an in-person meeting where you have to drive or get in your car or maybe there's not one in your backyard. And then you also have the added layer of secular and it just makes it a lot more harder. Um, you know, so I, when I found Secular, I suddenly realized, you know, I'd had the sponsor that uh, had really wanted me to stick with it, but I'd really started to pull away from just traditional AA and, you know, he was not happy that I was going to, in, no more I was going to in-person meetings. I was maybe going mm, once a week, if that. Um, I saw almost it was only the time when we would actually arranged to meet would I go with him because we'd meet beforehand and then go to a meeting together but other than that I wasn't going to zoom meetings with with any uh I was only going to zoom meetings um so for me you know I started just really staying in the zoomiverse it was just the easiest place for me I could go to I could go to any meeting that I wanted to I got the list of secular meetings and I could suddenly go to them and I didn't have to look at traditional AA um you know, and then suddenly the the steps came about, and I thought, well, okay, I should probably try and get into the steps and uh, see how I feel about them. So I was given, you know, I didn't have a, hmm, I don't know if I did. I think it was about it wasn't that long ago when I'd reached out to one recovery partner. You know, there's a term recovery partner was mentioned in a in a meeting, and I um. I mentioned I reached out to him and said, "Hey, do you mind if I, if I ask you to be my recovery partner?" And he said yes. And suddenly we were talking about the book "Staying Sober Without God," and uh, that was so different to me to have a, a a book that was called "Staying Sober Without God." It was the strangest thing to hear, um, but that I could actually work the steps without having any high power or God or anything like that. So it was really, really different. Um, you know, when it came to my step two and step three, I didn't have to worry anymore because I didn't have to try and fake it till I made it. Um, I got stuck in the middle and uh, I think I will read my step. I was humming and hiring about whether I wanted to read my step three because um, this is kind of where it starts to round up a little bit. My step three 
I didn't have to fake it anymore. I didn't have to fake this fact that I didn't have a belief because, you know, I would, you know, I went to in-person meetings. I even went to some in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, they all said, you know, at the end, they all stand in a circle and, and I think say the Lord's Prayer. I can't remember. But I, I, I would participate, but that doesn't mean I knew the words. <laughs> I just kind of, I kind of just mouthed them because I didn't know what to do. But uh, when it came to my step three and secular, it just, it ultimately just changed everything for me. Um, it was just the ability to have different meetings around and to be able to just be myself was so, so different. Um, so I will read my step three because I think it's a, it's an important part. So I try and read this every morning. I'm not the greatest at it. I'm not perfect, um, but I do try and read it. So I, this is, it's sort of a contract with the workbook with Staying Sober Without God, um, the companion workbook at least. Um, a recommendation is just to write down basically, you know, a commitment to yourself, a contract. Uh, so this is what my step three sort of looks like. So every day I will make a conscious commitment as to, to my new lifestyle of recovery. I will focus on placing, replacing maladaptive coping mechanisms that no longer serve me with healthy behaviors. I will place trust in 12-step recovery and my fellowships. I will be open and willing to listen to the collective resources, uh, the collective wisdom and utilize the resources available. I will endeavor to live an authentic and genuine existence focused on addressing resentments, emotional sobriety, looking at my sphere of control, practicing rigorous honesty and taking accountability. I will actively participate in my recovery by doing service in my fellowships and by carrying the message to people who still suffer. So for me, when I did the thing about my step, my step three, when I wrote up the contract for myself, I knew that I had to try and find this way of doing things. I had to find a way to, to be with myself, to be comfortable with what I needed to do, you know, because step three is one of the more difficult ones when I did it in, you know, when I did in traditional, I was just taught, just fake it, just fake it. Um, you know, I, I could sit and do the, the God, you know, the serenity prayer and I could say all that stuff, but uh, it was actually really, really difficult. And then when I'd done my step three with staying so without God, uh, it was so different to have a conscious commitment to myself. Um, you know, over the, over the year and a bit, I've had a lot of temptation to use and drink, um, uh, I lost my relationship in Canada. My relationship fell apart pretty, pretty drastically. It got incredibly uh, destructive. It was not a good. It was not a place for me to be in, um, and I'd stayed in that relationship too long for me. And uh, even though we'd broken up in June, July, I think probably around the year of of this year. Um, it, it only took me until six weeks ago to actually get on a plane and come back to Australia because I didn't want to do the geographical movement again. I'd been so comfortable in, in finding um, myself in Canada and I'd really started to set up some roots with, you know, it was so hard for me to just bounce around and I hated the fact I knew I'd come back to a country and then have to go to another country and deal with parents in two different countries again. That uh, It was just really hard. So I, in August, mid-August last year, essentially just over six weeks ago, um, I packed up my bags and, and had no choice but to get on that plane and go to Australia. Um, so I'm currently in Australia. And uh, that was a really hard decision for me to, to leave behind my lifestyle, the life that I know and with my uh, partner, even though our relationship had fully ended. 
um, I just didn't want to make that move and deal with the transition of that. So my drinking, you know, I had stopped, um, but I was very much tempted to drink and to use just because I couldn't cope with having my, uh, having to deal with all these things back here in this country and being in an environment where I was so used to being around alcohol um, and drugs, it was just, it was a really uncomfortable situation. Uh, but I came back to Australia, you know, six weeks ago, I managed to settle back in and then I'm going to New Zealand in just over two weeks, just under two weeks actually. And, uh, you know, I just didn't want to have to come back and deal with my problems. I realized that I hadn't make it, hadn't made a really good amends to my parents. Mm. It was more of a sit down, you know, I admit that I've done something wrong, but I didn't really take accountability for it. I just kind of sat with it. And, uh, you know, I did my apology to them, but I didn't make amends to them. I just said, you know, I'm sorry that this has happened. You know, I was drinking and drugging, you know, this is what happened. But I didn't sit down and say, hey, I'm an alcoholic. This is what's going on. But uh, I realized when I, a little while ago that all those little events around my uh, my drinking had just caused so much chaos that, yeah, I, I'm an alcoholic. And uh, that was one of the biggest realizations for me because I I couldn't deny it. I could not deny it no matter how much I wanted to. When I put all my experiences together of my drinking, my drugging, I went, oh, went, oh, shoot, I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic. Oh, okay. You know, and that's been, that's been a shock and still uh, not necessarily a hard one to accept, but still was one that I am kind of like, is this the thing about me that I don't want to admit? But I know it. I know that I'm this person. Um, so, you know, in the past month and a half, about a month and a half, I've sort of sat here with the realization that this is who I am. You know, I am an addict alcoholic. Um, I've also been fortunate enough to find um, two other fellowships to go into, uh, CODA and SLAA, which have both been amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll touch on the high power stuff very, very quickly. When I first came into traditional, you know, I was just told, just just don't worry about it. You'll eventually get there. Um, but I say to people, if you want to put a, a stamp on my forehead, which stands with my higher powers, it's a fellowship um, because I place trust in my 12-step recovery. Oh, you can tell it's late for me because it works. Um, because for me, my 12-step fellowships have actually found some peace and tranquility inside me that I didn't have before. Um, there's a saying, I've been saying it quite recently, but there's a saying in New Zealand, uh, what is the most important thing? And it's he tangata, he tangata, he tangata, which is the people, the people, the people. And uh, the fellowship to me is everything. Um, you know, I can't do this without you. I can't, I just can't. And I can't imagine what my life would be like if I hadn't had Zoom and then secular Zoom. Like it's like a double tick box of amazing people and uh you know I've been thinking a lot recently about how amazing it is to come into secular zoom and to feel welcome and to not worry about the fact that I don't have a higher power and I never I never will the doorknob could be it the, the floor my shoes anything I just don't need it I just don't I don't need to worry about that and when I come into secular AA um, I just get to be very, very comfortable with, with myself and people seem to be okay with me. Um, 
it's been a privilege to be in secular AA. It's given me the ability to be who I am and not worry about other what other people think and to not worry about the fact that, you know, I don't have this belief and I don't have to. You know, I forced myself to do it. I just thought, well, if I keep praying, if I keep, you know, getting down and just sitting there and, and meditating and all this stuff that eventually I'll get there. But it never got there. I never got to that point. And, you know, maybe someone would say to me, try it again. Mm -mm. No, thank you. I don't think that's a good idea. I think for me, I know what's best for me and that's not to do any of that stuff. It's just to come into recovery circles and just to be present and just to be aware of what's going on with me. And, uh, you know, I'll finish up with a few other things. It's just, I realize now, having just over a year, that I wouldn't have been able to stay sober if I went and stayed in traditional. I think I would have eventually got to a point where I would have hit a massive, I was already starting to hit a brick wall, but I definitely know that I probably would have hit a more bigger wall about trying to believe and finding that so hard that I probably would have relapsed. Um, whereas now I can sit here and realize that I don't have to worry about anything. I don't have to deal with the fact that um, I don't have anything to do with my belief in a higher power. I just have to come to AA. And uh, I love that. It's It's so different to just have people that care about me and that I care about myself and that I don't need to just focus on this one aspect that will give me all the gifts because I actually have all the gifts. You know, I, I actually look at the promises sometimes in, in mainstream AA and uh, yeah, part of them have come true, you know, because for me, I don't need to have that higher power to believe in. So uh, one of the greatest things that I found in secular A is the friendship. You know, like I said, it's the people. It's it's you guys are all my you're all my friends. You're all my family. Um, I don't have a big family. I was estranged. I'm estranged from one side of my family. The other family, yeah, I don't really speak too much. But uh. I have friends now. I have amazing friends and family that want to stick around me and be around me. And yeah, I, I go to so many meetings because I love the fact that I can be here. Um, so I think, you know, I'm pretty sure I'll leave it there. I don't know if I've got too much else to say, but uh, yeah, just secular AA has given me the ability to be comfortable in my own skin. If you can't see, I'm in pajama bottoms, you know, it's three o'clock in the morning and I can be here in my pajamas and it doesn't matter because you guys all love me for me and that's such a new thing and it doesn't matter who, you know who I am or what I do as long as I come in stay sober be present and uh be with all of you because all of you are so wonderful people and I just want to say thank you for giving me the opportunity to share at three o'clock in the morning I hope everything I said was English um but I love you all and thank you all for being here